only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11 provide this morning's scripture reading. In the uh, blue pew Bible in front of you, you can find Romans 5, 11 on page 942. Romans 5 through 11, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, the word of our God. Peace with God through faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies and we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, let's seek God's help as we come to his word. <clears throat> Lord, open our eyes to see the, the wonderful things that are in your word. Teach us the things of Christ. Show us who he is. Show us what you've done for us, Lord. And give us hope. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. <clears throat> and when uh, Jesus came in on that donkey and people cried out hosanna to the highest blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the lord we understand that they misunderstood the nature of his coming they were looking for a political king those who understood anything at all that day but here's what they were doing they were hoping they had their hope fixed on redemption on release whether it was political or otherwise. And that's what is common with this passage that we're dealing with today in Romans. 
Because Jesus built hope that was unimaginable at the time. He was there to establish hope. He was there to establish hope in the face of all persecution, in the face of death itself, in the face of the final judgment. That we could have hope no matter what. And that's why I've entitled this, Hope, Hope, and More Hope. Because he begins with hope, and then he says, well, what about persecution and tribulation, suffering? And he says, that even increases our hope. So this passage is all about hope and, and has something very much in common with what this day means in the calendar. The hope of Christ coming. The hope of what Christ is going to accomplish. The Messiah for his people. And so hope, of course, is the most critical thing in our lives just about. Without it, we can't even function. We can't even wake up. We don't even want to get out of bed if we have no hope whatsoever. Hope is critical. Hope invigorates and comforts and energizes and strengthens us. And so God's Word is all about hope. And many, many have said that Paul's theology or his description of God and what God's accomplished for us is all Here's a big word, all eschatology. In other words, everything he talks about in terms of what God has done is pointing to the future, pointing ahead of us to give us that hope. And so as we come into this passage, uh, I hope you have your Bibles open or the Pew Bible to page 942 because the outline is just found right there in the passage. We're going to trace through uh, the, the words that Paul uses here, justified in peace and access and then rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, how these promote our hope. And then we'll jump into his talk about suffering and how wonderfully suffering promotes our hope as well. So he begins here, we have been justified. Obviously, it's a done deal in terms of justification. He doesn't say in hopes of justification. He doesn't say as we work toward justification or he doesn't say as we think about the possibility of one day being justified. He says, since we have been justified, it's a done deal. And notice it is God that justifies us. It's his idea. It's not ours. It's his declaration. We don't justify ourselves. You don't justify me. I don't justify you. He makes it explicit in Romans 8 when he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is going to condemn when God justifies? And justified means not only that we're acquitted, not only that we're declared not guilty, so that all condemnation against us is removed, but it also means if there's no condemnation, then there's only favor upon us. All that's left is God's favor. We can live in His favor forever. That's what it means to be justified. It is glorious. And it's by faith. It's not we've been justified. Notice we've been justified by faith. It's not justified through accomplishment, justified through achievement, justified by merits or works or privilege or family connections. We're justified by faith. We don't bring something to the table to help God lean toward forgiving us. And if we were to try to do that, if, you're to, if you tried to scrounge around any day of your life 
to try to find something, even a little thing, that would earn a little favor from God, every day of your life would just blow up in your face with more guilt and more condemnation. We can't depend on anything we've done, anything we are. We depend helplessly on Christ, on this one who is the Son of God and took on himself flesh. And he died in the place of sinners, bearing their punishment on the cross. He was raised from the dead as God's testimony that he really did pay for sin. He was raised from the dead as the beginning of the end of all all the misery of sin, including death itself. And we rest in that Christ. And nothing else. Looking completely away from ourselves to depend on what God will do for us in Jesus Christ as he freely promises. That's how we're justified. By faith. By helpless dependence. We are brought into his favor. And God, and and Paul says, being justified, we have peace with God. You see, this whole thing between us and God is, is really quite personal. Our sin is not general. It's not abstract. In this courtroom, with us and God, all of our sins are actually against the judge himself. As though we had broken into his house and we had kidnapped his own daughter. That's how personal it is. Can you imagine a judge dealing with somebody in front of him that had done that to him? And now he's going to render judgment and you think... Dude, it's all over for you. He's not going to let you off. Because everything you did was against him personally. That's the remarkable thing here. This God takes our sin personally. Our sin is personal. Our sin is an attack against his authority, against his honor. We mock his power when we sin and dare him to do something about it. In our sin, we make ourselves his enemy. We change allegiance. We are alienated from him. That's why it's so amazing to read here that when he justifies us, we have peace with him at that point. You see, he's not a distant, anonymous, faceless judge who pronounces a verdict on defendant number 13. Okay, you can go. That's not the case at all. It's intimately personal. Our sin is personal against him, us against him, and his justification is personal, him for us. Pardon my pronouns there, but it's not just a judge's verdict. It's a father's adoption. He reconciles himself to us, us to him. Verse 9, as we read, says that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So it's a restored relationship, fully restored to favor and blessing. We have peace, shalom. We're loved by this God. That's what happens. So gloriously personal. And he says we not only have peace, but we have access, entrance into his presence. That means fellowship with him. We have personal interaction with him. 
And nothing speaks of access more than when we have the Lord's Supper every month. We sit at table with Him in that. We sit in fellowship in the comfort and happiness with the glory of the Lord. We call upon Him. And obviously, as we feed on the bread and wine, the symbol is He gives Himself freely to us. We're intimate. We have access. As Bryce talked about, the way is open. And so justification means peace. It means access. And then he says, we rejoice in hope. Now, I want you to see the line drawn here by Paul. This acceptance, this justification, this peace, this access means that we have hope. He draws a line from this entrance into fellowship with him with the hope of the final day. Just goes straight from one to the other. And hope, of course, means a certain expectation. And the point is this. If you have a fully, permanently restored relationship with God, then, wait, wait a minute, that means in that final day of judgment... I will still have that relationship with him. Yes, it does. And that means when he comes in his glory that I will not be cast away from him, that I will enter into that glory and taste and see that glory, experience that glory and be transformed by that glory. Yes, it does. You have a relationship with him and it carries to the final day of judgment. David's version is the last verse of Psalm 23. Those of you who know it can say it with me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, I know there's more than that. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's his version of what we read here. And interestingly, see, David just starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. If he's my shepherd, then goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in his house forever. And that's what this is saying. If you've come into fellowship with him and he's justified you, then you have the hope of glory, period. You have it. When you have him, you've got it all. And it's not going to change. You see, the same kind of leap is in Romans 8. If you turn over a page, page 944, if you've got that Bible, uh, notice in verse 30, as he's talking about this process of saving us, you expect that he would say in verse 30, those he predestined, he called, that means bringing us to himself, You would expect him to say, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he sanctified, and then glorified. Sanctification is the process by which we're made less and less sinful and more and more like Christ. So you think, you know, include that part. You say, Paul, you gave the beginning of the book justified, and you gave the ending of the book glorified, but you left out the whole middle, the whole life, the whole middle part. Why? Well, the point is the same. Justified, glorified. See? It's wonderful. If you're justified, you're glorified. 
He's making a point. The one means the other. Your justification has immediate consequences. You're accepted now. You're accepted then. And from the beginning, he saves us for that glorification. Now, if you want to describe it in human terms, and I'm just doing this in human terms. God doesn't think this way, but maybe this can help communicate. It's not that God comes to save me and say, okay, I'm going to get Darwin out of sin and in a relationship with me, and then let's see how he does. Let's see how it's going to go. Let's see if it's going to last or not. Let's just start and see. Okay, that would be one approach. But no, here's the approach, let's say, in human terms. Darwin is slated for final glorification. Let's get it started. That's the approach of God. You're slated for final glorification. In fact, when he says in this passage, he predestined us, it doesn't say he predestined us to believe. He says he predestined us to be conformed to his image, which means glorification. He predestined us for the final glorification. And he came to get us, to get us there. And so immediately, when he talks about here in Romans 5, that we've been justified, we have peace and access, he says, and we have hope of the glory of God. It's all one full, rich package. This glory is the outshining of all of God's perfection, all of his beauty bursting out, okay? So it's not just glory that we get from God. It's the real glory of God. We have hope of that. Kay and I were on the rocks. (laughs) Not relationally. Um, (laughs) But literally, uh, on a point outside, right in Carmel, California. We were at uh, the wedding that Ben uh, and uh, Gail had for their daughter, Mary Benton. And... uh, so we took a few days afterwards. And so huge section of rocks on a point that jutted out. And the water came just bursting on the rocks. We had to get, thankfully, I have a wife that's wiser than me. Because I want to get right next to it and let it hit me. And we read right there, if you let that happen, it'll sweep you out to sea. So thankfully, she kept us far back. <laughs> um, But so just the majesty of water crashing and the pools and eddies and little rivers between all the rocks that it forms, it it was just a cascade of silver foam everywhere. It's it's, it's glorious. And the glory of the water hitting that one spot was revealed to us in a sense because we were there. And what he says is in that final day, you'll be there. (laughs) You'll be there and you'll see the glory of God. That's the way it describes when Christ comes and history ends as we know it. Titus 2.13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, same word, waiting for that hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's what we look for is that we're going to be on the rocks, you know, We're going to see that glory crashing. We're going to see it in all of its richness. And it's hard to get at that. If you could imagine all the overlooks of all the mountains and all the valleys and all the canyons and sea cliffs and the panoramas of all the rivers and rainforests, desert rocks and snowy tundra and countrysized glaciers, 
If you could think of all the complexity and bewildering variety of plant and animal life, all the rich production of arts and construction and technology, and then try to take in the staggering views of stars and planets and supernova and galaxies after galaxy after galaxy. And, and if you could roll all these together in a hundred lifetimes and multiply it to the tenth power, and still it would be nothing hardly compared to the glory of Christ that's going to be revealed to us. These are just small, faint echoes of that glory around us. And then we'll be there. We'll be there. Isn't it amazing that that's his plan for you? That's his plan, the unveiling of that beauty to burst into your life? Just for example, what would the revelation of his love and kindness be? When we're flooded with his love, when we're nourished and comforted to, to the filling of our being, we're thrilled by that love. We're made perfectly whole and perfectly pure and perfectly happy in that love. We know ourselves to be perfectly loved by this awesome God that made us and gave His Son for us. We'll experience and encounter the glory of God. And it's a transforming glory. It's a transforming glory. Colossians 3, Paul says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, this glory appears, he says, Then you also will appear with him in glory. Or as John puts it in John 3, When we see him as he is, we will become like him. So it's a glory that envelops us and transforms us, remakes us into its likeness. We'll be made perfect in love, for instance. What a glory to have a boundless, joyful, energetic love for every person at all times and to experience that from every person. That's just a little part of it. It's gigantic to think. To think the glory of finally being good. Finally being good. Thoroughly good, only good, unchangeably good, forever good with not even another tiny mistake or the smallest wrong thought or word, never again a regret or a pang of conscience, ever. That's glory. That's glory. The hope of glory. And it includes... As Bryce made reference to a restored body as well, a body that never grows old or weak, that will never be sick, that will never know disease or harm of any kind, a body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as one of power, in contrast to even take the strongest, fastest body on earth, it's a body of weakness compared to now a body of power. Philippians 3, when he comes, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I have a personal theory that I'll eat all the bluebell I want and still have a six-pack. That's just me. (laughs) Oh, just kidding. 
No, no, I'm not. No. We don't know what it's going to be like, do we? We can't imagine it. And all of this in a renewed environment, this glory. It's hard, as we just saw, when you see the beauty of mountains and cliffs on the ocean and sun uh, lighting up the top of waves with green, a sea otter, a dozen huge orange jellyfish, a school of hundreds of sardines flashing silver, a hundred-pound tuna suddenly racing at 30 miles per hour. It's hard to realize that this is a broken, crippled creation. If this is creation in a wheelchair, what will it be when it runs free? What will it be? In Romans 8, Paul uses the term bondage to describe this creation. If this is bondage, what will freedom look like? If this is the dungeon, what will happen when creation gets the run of the castle? We can't imagine. But God has the full blueprints completed. Construction begins when Christ comes. (laughs) The new heavens and the new earth. We have hope of the glory of God. So ultimately, we don't have the hope just of a new job, getting accepted at a good university, getting married, having children, knowing success, making a lot of money. It's not ultimately the hope of a long life, the hope of health, the hope of having a loving family, of grandchildren, lots of wonderful friends, of even having a great church body and a ministry to thousands in the world. It's not the hope of having a stable economy and military peace. We have the hope of nothing less than the glory of God and all that that means for us and for this broken world. That's our hope. Being justified, we have hope of the glory of God. What he says in this section is expressed so well in later in Romans 15 when he says, and here's a, here's a verse to memorize. Here's a verse to memorize. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and hope in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There's the Holy Spirit's work. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Of course, the most natural question presses Paul's hearers at this point. How can we maintain this kind of hope in the withering persecution that we suffer? And notice Paul says here in verse 3, not just that we withstand suffering or we weather our suffering or brave our suffering or endure our suffering, he uses the same word he used when he's talking about hope in the glory of God. In fact, this, this word when he says we, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God means we boast in it. We have a jubilation as we look in that, to that hope. And he comes back and says, More than that, we have a jubilation in our sufferings. Not just in the midst of them, but in our sufferings. We glory in those sufferings. And this jolts us. It it was meant to jolt his hearers. It means that our suffering is no longer our enemy. It can't act against us ultimately. It can't harm us. Our suffering in God's hand is now our servant to do us good. 
It's a little preview of Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Notice the progression. Suffering, endurance, character, hope. The first thing you see, it's not only does it not take away our hope, it adds to our hope. Suffering does. Suffering doesn't diminish our hope. It can nourish our hope. Satan would discourage you in your suffering. He wants to drive a wedge between you and God because of suffering so that you doubt him and you don't trust him and you turn away from him. Paul says that for those who believe suffering actually increases our faith, God uses what Satan would desire and turns it for our good. And that's why Dunn can say, and the commentator Dunn, suffering is the condition in which the grace of hope is experienced in its greatest strength. Its greatest strength. And that's why we can glory in it. We say, hey, this is going to increase my hope. It's going to fix me more on the promise of God. It's going to make me be even more intimate with God. Francis Godet, 19th century commentator, says that God enables the believer to triumph in his weaknesses, to extract triumph from his very weaknesses. It is tribulations that make hope break forth in all its vigor. That's why you say we glory even in our suffering because we just motor on through them. I don't mean in, in, a, in a shallow sense, but I mean in that sense that we increase our hope and our faith and our love to God. I think when he says endure then, it doesn't mean just to last. Like, I got through it without a nervous breakdown and I'm pretty happy about that, okay? You know, although that can seem like a major accomplishment at times. But I think the best references to Paul's way of thinking about endurance is 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to turn there, it's page 960, if you've got that pew Bible. And this is the chapter on love, as many of you know. And when he gets to verse 8, verse 7, I mean, he says this in a poetic passage, glorious passage, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, that last phrase, endure, is the same word. It's the verb form of this word, endurance. So Paul thinks of love immediately when he thinks about endurance. And in that passage, the first part belongs to the last part. In other words, bear and endure go together. And then the middle two terms go together, believe and hope. And so what Paul is saying is no matter how, uh, what difficulty love faces, it relentlessly gives itself away. It bears and endures. It continues no matter what. And how does it do? It trusts and hopes in God as it gives itself away. That's what love does. Love continues to do good to others even when the worst is happening. It does so with a joyful trust in the goodness of God now and for the future. Now, notice how similar Peter's words are. This is way back on page 10,015, if you don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter 4, 19. Listen to this. This is amazing how similar. Let those who suffer according to God's will, the subject is suffering, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, that same combination, faith 
and continuing to do good, continuing in love. Endurance isn't simply just making it through. It means to continue to believe Him and to continue to spend yourself for others even when you suffer. And the word proven character is basically a a tried. When it says uh, character there, really the word is a a tried person. It's the the word adokimos, to try gold or silver. And so this enduring love, no matter what, continues to trust and, and believe and give itself away. And this proven character is likely then to mean this proven faith that continues to trust. It's like Peter says in the first chapter of, first, first, uh, first of, of his letter. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, tested genuineness of your faith, it's the same word, this testing of your faith, is more precious than go, though tested by fire, may result in praise and glory. So what happens is that we continue to experience His grace and presence in wonderful ways while we suffer. We actually, we should put it this way, He's incredibly available to us as we suffer. And we can trust Him. We can continue to give ourselves away. We can continue to draw near to Him and depend on Him. And when we do look to Him and wait on Him, He gives Himself away freely and lavishly during suffering. Let me put it this way. Our brokenness is His special dwelling place. Would you remember that? Your brokenness, your tragedy... Your desperation is His special dwelling place. He says it. Isaiah 57, verse 15, Thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Okay? Where else? He names one other place. (laughs) I think this is interesting. I dwell in the heavens. Nothing can contain me. No house can contain me. I dwell in the heavens, but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Your suffering, your brokenness is his special dwelling place. Of all times, he will draw near to you and lavish himself upon you. So in suffering, we experience His help and His grace and His strength. And we continue to believe the promise of final glory. And that encourages us. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to leave me. And so Paul says, it produces this hope. It increases hope. And this hope doesn't put us to shame. In other words, this hope is going to prove good in that final day. You know, the psalmist says, guard my soul, deliver me, let me not put to sh- be put to shame because I take refuge in you. I take refuge in you, refuge in you, so don't let me be ashamed of that, you know, be destroyed. And so that would be our shame is that we trust in him and then in judgment day we find out, oh, too bad, you're going to suffer the wrath of God after all. And Paul says, no, this hope does not put us to shame. And... Amazingly, he says, 
He doesn't point outwardly to the cross at this point. He does later to prove the love of God, which we'll look at next week. But he basically points to our personal experience of love from God. Love as it is experienced in rich measure in our own hearts. He says, you know why we have a hope that's sure? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The word is shed abroad, poured out. It indicates an extravagant pouring out of love. It means that His love has been diffused into our hearts. Our believer's heart is regarded as being just completely suffused and integrated with the love of God to control us, to captivate us. And the Holy Spirit is personally given to us to spread this love, to convince us of this love that God has for us. Calvin says, shed abroad is emphatic. It's so plentiful that it fills our hearts. It mitigates our sorrow and adversity like a sweet seasoning gives a loveliness to our tribulation. That's what God does. Lavished upon us and brought home to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Dunn says this really is a picture. He says it's like a cloudburst on a parched countryside. The cloud burst of the love of God in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he says, that's why we have hope. It's the same thing later as Paul says in Galatians. He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You see? Convincing us. You're my daddy. You're my father now. You love me. <laughs> that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And I want to ask you if you've entered into that world of hope through Christ. Have you entered into that world that, that day to day in the midst of everything that you suffer and experience, you have this burning hope of the glory of God and the, and the hope of the love of God presently with you through everything that you go through? Do you have that hope? I was listening to a comedian describing his uh, kind of weird tongue-in-cheek childhood. And he said, my parents told me, don't ever go through the cellar door. Don't ever open that cellar door. He said, so for years I wouldn't open the cellar door. I wouldn't open the cellar door. And finally I decided I'm going to open the cellar door. I'm going to see what's behind it. And so he says, I opened it. And there was the grass and the trees and the sky. See, he was in the cellar the whole time. Bad joke. Yeah, I understand. But <laughs> I use it for this purpose. That you can come out of the cellar as a human being. Because that's where you are. That's where you are. If you've not entered into the light of the glory of God of tasting His love through Christ, of being convinced and seeing God has sent His Son to die for me. He was raised from the dead for me. I can enter into a whole new life and have a whole new hope. I can have my sins forgiven. I can think about judgment with peace and comfort. Begin believing that. Begin believing that and see the fruit that comes into your life. I read an article in uh, National Geographic several months back 
about the reclaiming of land in the earth. It's a huge affair of whether we're going to feed ourselves or not. And I talked about some extremely expensive things that are done in places. We said it can happen this simply. And I think this is a great metaphor for faith. This is in the area where the Sahara Desert is being reclaimed in bits and pieces or seeking to. And one of the methods is this, called the cordon pierrot, if I pronounce it right. Um, somebody else can help me with my French later. But it's a long line of stones that you set up in a field at the bottom of the drift of the field. Fist-sized stones. And you're like, if you see those stones set up, you say, what's this about? We're going to recover this field. Right. You're going to put a row of stones and you're going to recover a field. Yeah. Yeah, we are. So, snagged by the cordon, the rains washing over the crusty soil pause enough right there to percolate a little bit. Okay? Reads on, suspended silt falls to the bottom along with seeds that sprout in this slightly richer environment. The line of stones becomes a line of plants that slows the water further. More seeds sprout at the upstream edge. Grasses are replaced by shrubs and trees which enrich the soil with falling leaves. In a few years, a simple line of rocks can restore an entire field. And I ask you, begin to believe in Jesus Christ. Build that cordon perot. Begin to believe the promise of God for you and your life, little by little. Capture those promises of God and be built on those promises and your life will be rebuilt from the bottom up. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we praise you and honor you that you would come and rescue us in this glorious way through your own Son, through the suffering of your own Son. You're a magnificent God, a God to be loved, a God to be adored, a God to be embraced, a God to be trusted, desiring only that we live lives of transformation, that we have a life of hope instead of a life of desperation. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, O God, for your grace and mercy that through Christ you would give us these lives of hope. Raise us from the dead, O Lord. Grant us this faith for Jesus' sake and our good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away
Won't you chase my fears away? 